It is time. Check it out, y'all. You are now about to witness. Then it goes a little something like this. Welcome back to another edition of the Game Time Decision Podcast. Joining me today for another episode of our analytics series is Andrew Berkshire of SportLogic. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. You're one of those names that when I was doing this, it was it was clear that you were doing something special in this field that, uh, that needed to be talked about. And that's sort of proprietary statistics, but it's also micro statistics. Uh, and before we get into those two, I'm going to start this off with the same two questions I ask everybody when I start this, which is if you were to describe the hockey analytics community to someone who is new to it or, or new to this series in general, how would you describe one where we've been, two where we are, and three where we're going? Uh. It's a tough question, but uh, I'll say where we've been was about 10 years ago, people were trying to figure out a way to predict future goals better than goals do, because as it turns out, uh, scoring goals doesn't predict future goal scoring very well at all, uh, very poorly, especially in small sample sizes. That's why you see guys who score, you know, 10 goals in October and then five the rest of the season. Oftentimes there's ways to look beyond that. And uh, one of the ways that was most effective was to look at shot attempt numbers. Uh, if somebody shoots a lot or if they're on the ice for a lot of shots for, usually they score a lot of goals uh, down the stretch. So that's uh, something that took, took hold of uh, of the community and shot attempts became the preferred base stat uh, to build analytics around. And where we're going is, you know, shot attempts fill in a lot of the information that you need to evaluate hockey. I mean, hockey is... It's a fast game. It's a complex game, but ultimately the goals are very simple. It's to get more goals than the other teams. So you're only really needing to look at, you know, a, a few different things to get most of the information and the rest of it is minutia. And that minutia is where microstats come in, where you can build, you know, uh, models to see which players can work best with which other players. Uh, you know, if, if you have a player on your team who is excellent at uh, passing the puck to the slot, but players who can't finish, that player is going to have, you know, poor assist numbers. Now, if you acquire a, a scoring winger that is excellent at hanging out in front of the net and uh, ripping home uh, shots in close quarters, then that playmaker is all of a sudden going to look like an elite hockey player. So you can build out things like that, but ultimately it is the minutia of the game. It's the, you know, looking for five to 10 extra goals per season from, from a team perspective, as opposed to uh, the big uh, difference maker, which was Corsi, which, you know, there are teams like uh, the LA Kings, for example, who turned from a borderline playoff team to a two-time Stanley Cup winner based on pushing uh, shot differentials, which is something that Daryl Sutter has been excellent at his entire career. I think you really nailed it there with that extra, you know, at the most five goals a season from the minutiae. When you look at these players and you look at, uh, you know, uh, Dawson Springs war numbers and you see how many goals or wins they're truly adding over the course of a season, you know, statistics, statistics, I should say, isn't about, you know, in totally changing the field. You're not going to go from 30th to first just because you invested in these things, but it's finding that extra 
edge, that slight edge that over the course of a year gives you one, two, maybe even three more wins that you didn't have before. And those six points, as we see right now across the league, are the difference between getting a wild card spot and first in the division in more than one division. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like, for example, the Pacific, which is I think there's three points separating fourth and first, which is nuts. But uh, yeah, it's that stuff. And it also like you find over a seven game series, those little things can matter a lot, you know, especially in terms of coaching impacts. I think that's where you see coaching impacts more than anything else is in game decisions, uh, making decisions on on the fly to to uh, give your team a little bit of a boost. It's that little stuff that pushes one team over the other in a seven game series, especially if they're relatively equal teams. So if you have that extra little bit of information in your pocket that you know that, say, another team may not, that can help you win. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins last year, they built their their system, uh, Mike Sullivan's system, in in a way based around those microstats. Uh, so it's advantageous for teams to not dump the puck out of their own zone to carry it out. But it's more ad- it, it makes a bigger difference for forwards to not dump the puck out. Because if your defenseman dumps the puck out, odds are there's a forward in that area who might be able to win the puck battle. Whereas if your forward dumps it out, you're just giving it to the other team, right? So like you may be relieving pressure, but they're coming right back at you anyway. So Sullivan's team, uh, a lot of people were surprised that his defenseman, uh, when he took over for Mike Johnston, there wasn't a big change in terms of uh, how much his defenseman dumped the puck out or or carried it out? It, it stayed relatively the same. He basically told them, "Don't worry about it. Just get the get the zone clear when you're in trouble." His forwards, however, went from dumping the puck out fairly regularly to never making that decision. It was always a controlled carry or a pass on the breakout. They were always trying to make plays. So the forwards who are at you know they're at the points most likely along the boards. They're in a less dangerous position they can make those plays and that turned into, you know, they were one of the fastest teams in the league last year. I mean, we, we saw in the Stanley cup final, how much, you know, the sharks dominated the West. It was, it was not even really that close, but when it came up to against, against the Pittsburgh Penguins, they could not handle the speed of the Penguins attack. And and that's the kind of thing that you could build in your microstats where the Penguins and the sharks are probably fairly equal teams or they were last year, but that little bit of extra information allowed the Penguins to just dominate that series. And I think that sets a a pretty solid baseline. The other question I always ask people is, who would you recommend they read to get into this community? Who are some names that you think, you know, if you're you're looking to find the latest work or even just some of the older work and you're new to this, that you absolutely have to take a look at? Yeah, if if you're looking to, like, break into it, I I recommend uh, Down Goes Brown or uh, Sean McIndoe. That's his his real name. He has a couple of really good primers on the now-defunct Grantland website, which I believe are archived. Uh, He's really good. it's kind of like the best thing you can do is interact with people on Twitter. I think because a lot of people in the community are willing to, to sit there and and talk you through things, uh, go to DMS and, uh, help you learn. But for the most part, it's just working with it on your own, you know, like figure out the basics and then go look it up on the websites that, uh, that carry this stuff. So Corsica.hockey stats.hockeyanalysis.com puckalytics.com naturalstattrick.com. All these sites have a wealth of information that you can, play with and learn their format. And you, and you have to, if you're going to get into it, you have to learn how those sites work. And some of them are not super intuitive. So you have to figure out where things are, what things mean through those sites and, uh, and play with it yourself. Because the only way you're truly going to attach yourself to it is if you get into it with, especially if you're a fan of a team, you get into it with your team 
learn some things about your team that you didn't you didn't know and then you know talk about it on twitter or with your friends it it's always important in the learning process to do practical application completely agree with that all right let's get into a little bit more about you and what you do and we'll start that off with sport logic what is sport logic okay so sport logic is a company that started in i think july 2014 maybe 2015 i forget how long i've been there now i think it was 2015 but anyway uh, they are a machine learning company that started out as uh, Craig Bunton, who is a former Olympic Olympic figure skater, and Mersan Javen, I believe is his, is his last name. You can look it up on the sports sportlogic.com website. They have a masthead with all their information on there. But uh, Mersan was the head engineer, the computer engineer, and he built a program in his, I think his PhD, that was supposed to learn the normal behavior in say like an airport. It was very Orwellian and say that if somebody hopped over a barricade in an airport, it would flag that, that action and send security there automatically. So it would basically say like, okay, everybody's walking. That's fine. It, it would learn that stuff. And, uh, Mersenne isn't that kind of person. So he didn't really want to go that route. He created that technology, but didn't sell it. So Craig came up to him and said, why don't we try this with sports? Because there's lots of applications there. Craig's initial uh, thought was to go with figure skating. And they did a a little bit of work with TSN. Uh, You know, Craig's opinion was that judges are terrible in figure skating, which I think most people who follow the sport agree with. There's not uh, a lot of objectivity there and some scandals as well. So they they did, I think, one or two uh, skating tournaments, I guess you would call them. But yeah, anyway, uh, and they measured like, you know, how high somebody would leap, how much of the ice they would cover, how far they skated during their routine, things like that. And it was interesting, but figure skating, as much as it's a, it's a large sport, it's a not, it's not a big money sport. A lot of the bigger competitions are amateur, so there's not a lot of money there. So uh, they came up with the idea of they're Canadian, so why don't they go to hockey? And then they brought in uh, myself and Chris Boucher to do consulting on what they should track. And they started building out the machine learning uh, for for hockey, right? So we tracked, I believe, a full season in the past, like the, the season that just happened uh, manually, and then inputted that information into the computer so that it would learn what a stick check looks like, what a shot looks like, what a pass looks like. And it could identify that using, you know, position of where the puck goes. And you could check it off like success, failure, all that kind of information. And then now it just collates it all into a giant database that encapsulates about three to 4,000 events every single game. So you have every tiny little event that happens during a game is captured by computers and then quality assurance checked by humans to make sure that there's no mistakes. Uh, So you have all this information and then it's a matter of figuring out what's important, uh, how to display it. And then you can give, uh, access to teams uh, who can build their own analytics or they can request us to build analytics for them. And that's where we are now. There's uh, contracts with, I believe, 18 different teams, uh, contracts with at least two broadcasters, RDS and Sportsnet, who I work for in the on, on the digital side. And I believe they also have a contract with NBC of some sort. 
Okay. I mean, that's uh, the most thorough explanation I think anyone could have asked for. Funny enough, I was working at Sportsnet not too long ago, actually, and I edited some of your pieces. Uh, Oh, awesome. (laughs) One of the chances. Um, But a lot of those pieces, as we mentioned those, and more recently the ones you discussed at Sloan, focus a lot on loose puck recoveries. And a lot of the work that you guys put out in the public is focused on that. So let's kind of narrow in on those. What is the value in a loose puck recovery, and how does it differ from something like a turnover or a giveaway? Okay, so loose puck recovery is a separate event from the actual jarring of a puck loose. Like it, it can happen naturally from a, a missed pass or, you know, a, a shot attempt that has a rebound or a missed shot. But also, if you stick check a player, uh, unless you get the puck, you don't get credited with, you know, a takeaway, right? So, like in the NHL, if they're counting a takeaway, it's two actual events. It's the removal of the puck from the opponent's possession and getting the puck. Uh, Sport logic separates that out. So you'd have a sticker body check to get the puck, and then you'd have the actual loose puck recovery. Uh, loose puck recoveries are so common in in uh, in hockey that they're almost, I believe they're almost as common or more common than actual shot attempts. So this is among the most common events that happen in games. Uh, hockey's a, a, a very chaotic game there's a lot of possession changes so the more you can dominate getting to those loose pucks winning those puck battles uh the more time you have with the puck the more chances you can create it's it's a really excellent statistic and you can also break it out by zone right so uh, a a team can be particularly good at recovering pucks in their own zone uh, and you can break it out break it down even further and look at where in the zone uh they're struggling or really good so for example we can I, we can say, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe in the area right in front of the net, that like inner slot space between the hash marks, uh, defending teams win those puck battles for loose pucks about 74% of the time. That's a huge amount, and it explains why there's not a ton of rebound goals, because there's a lot of rebounds in the NHL, especially right in that area where goalies don't quite uh, get the glove on it when they uh, when they make a save. So that uh, defensive pressure, you know, teams are focused on winning those puck battles. That's why you see teams who have uh, a lot of value on a guy like Shea Weber, who's big and can block people out and likes to stay close to the net when he's defending. He can win a lot of those, those battles in the, in the highest danger area. But at the same time, you have to then move the puck out. So you can see that if a team is doing one part good, uh, with the loose puck recoveries, but they're still allowing a lot of shot attempts or goals against. Uh, you can look at where they're where they're going wrong, right? So you have the strong puck, uh, puck recovery guys, but maybe you need a puck mover, and that's where you can start to build out your team or your roster uh, using these kind of microstats. Now, the players that we see that are that are typically leading the way in these recoveries are they players who are, are typically you know at the top of the league in in a stat like takeaways? You know, are these the players that are also causing the loose puck recoveries, or is this a different skill set? Is this that uh, that Wayne Gretzky's teaching from his father? You know, look where the puck is going to go. Are these just uh, incredibly intelligent hockey players who are leading the way in this? Well, it's mostly intelligent hockey players, but you know, the takeaway stat on NHL.com is fairly poorly tracked there are some things where it lines up well like for example uh, mark stone leads the league in takeaways for the last like three years i think 
and he is by far the best winger at loose puck recoveries. So that tracks. Uh, but the guys, the best players in the league at loose puck recoveries are guys like uh, Patrice Bergeron, PK Subban, Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty. Like uh, defensemen recover more loose pucks than than forwards do because they play more down low in the zone. So like they recover uh, low leverage things like dump ins. They recover high leverage things like rebounds. So uh, because of that shift where the defensive team wins more puck battles than the offensive team, uh, defensemen end up recovering more loose pucks by default. But guys like Patrice Bergeron recover as many pucks as the average, like a good defenseman. So you can see like the guys who get uh, reputations for being very good defensive forwards, a lot of them fit in in that top range for loose puck recovery. So you see like, uh, for me, a statistic has to pass a bit of the smell test uh, in order to be, you know, worthwhile before I even test it for like uh, predictability or anything like that. And when I see great defensive players like Patrice Bergeron and Joe Thornton at the top of these loose co- loose puck recovery statistics, I say, okay, I think that might be important. And then I'll look into it further. And you know, it it holds up fairly well uh, to the players that you would think would be very good at it. Of course there's off years and stuff and we only have two years of data, but it, you, you can see uh, what players will be given that reputation later on in their lives too, right? Like uh, young players who are excellent at loose puck recoveries who may not have that great defensive reputation so far, but it's going to happen sooner or later because people start to notice things like that. Mikhail Backlund being one of those names. Yes, absolutely. You know, like, and he's a guy who everyone's starting to come around on now because, you know, how can you not? He's having such a fantastic season. And uh, I think last year he scored 20 goals as well. So the offense is finally coming out. But yeah, Backlund is one of the best two-way forwards in the NHL. He's he's incredible at it. Uh, Mark Shifley as well is fantastic at recovering loose pucks. Uh, not overly physical. He's just smart. He gets to the right spots. The same kind of thing as... Max Pacioretty. Uh, oftentimes, Max Pacioretty will win a loose puck, and people will say, like, oh, he doesn't engage in many puck battles. And it's simply because he's smarter and faster than everybody else. So he'll be, there's going to be a puck battle happening. But by the time the, the opponent gets there, Pacioretty's already gone with it. So there's no need to engage in a puck battle. And those are the kind of things that uh, fans and media aren't really used to, like, they're not programmed to notice. So when they see a guy who's rarely involved in puck battles, they don't understand that maybe that's not a lack of physicality it's just a mark of intelligence yeah when i was talking with rachel dory she's the video coach for the sudbury wolves and getting into those discussions about not not only looking for plays that happen but looking for the plays that don't happen because your player made the right decision three steps before that play would have occurred is incredibly difficult to look at and and so to be able to have you know machine learning at your disposal to see, you know, yeah, that play did actually occur. And, and this is why it's good is invaluable. And I think it's really going to, to change the way we look and evaluate hockey. I'm sure this goes without saying, but these loose puck recoveries and just from the players you're listing off seems to be a, a strong correlation with positive possession players. Yes. Yeah. Very, very strong. And also, uh, you know, when we break it down by zone players who, uh, recover more loose pucks in the offensive zone, we can say are better four checkers, right? So they might create more chances off of, uh, off of like in zone plays, right? Once everybody's set up, uh, they can not just, uh, 
you know, create plays, but when a play happens, there's a higher chance of the team getting that puck back and preventing a clear. So, so there's, there's that kind of stuff as well. And you're kind of touching on it. There some of this work you're presenting through the zones. It's, it's very similar to soccer where they have regained possession. They show where uh, the team is most often regaining possession in hockey. Does the same thing apply if you're constantly turning pucks over, or I should say recovering loose pucks in the offensive zone or, you know, in the inner slot area, if you're some fantastic elite centerman or winger you know does how does that impact the game are you having a a more significant impact on your team's goals for percentage are you driving shot attempts what does that look like well like we we said before this stuff is minutiae uh loose puck recovery is a little bit less so so you can make uh you can see a bigger impact on on things like goals for percentage or coursey uh coursey for percentage than some of the other microstats but ultimately hockey is a team game and one player being good at one specific aspect of the game isn't enough to predict, you know, uh, future dominance or anything like that. So if somebody were had uh, Patrice Bergeron's skill at recovering loose pucks, but they didn't have his ability to skate the puck out or make passes and they, you know, didn't have Brad Marsh on another line, no David Pasternak, they're going to still struggle right? They might recover those loose pucks and you might see them working really hard. It's kind of like the difference between a fourth liner and a first liner, right? So like there could be fourth liners who work really hard and recover lots of loose pucks uh, based on their uh, like prorated for ice time, but because they don't have the requisite skills to make plays when, once they have the puck, you're not going to see as big of an impact. But overall, uh, if you look at the players who are tops in loose puck recoveries, it's usually pretty good players like uh, the forward this year who leads the entire NHL in loose puck recoveries is Austin Matthews. Uh, after that, Mark Stone, Joe Thornton, Patrice Bergeron, Alexander Barkov, you know, like these are guys who have great reputations for elite two way play. Mm-hmm. And you can also look at, uh, you know, where those loose puck recoveries are happening. So like if a defense, if a forward has a lot of loose puck recoveries, but, a huge chunk of them are in the defensive zone. You can surmise that they're struggling a little bit, even though they're playing pretty well. Yeah, that makes sense. If you expand this view to a, to a team level, are there certain coaches that you guys see, you know what, you know, uh, Claude Julia has a fantastic uh, defensive structure. And as a result, team is recovering more pucks in the defensive zone, or, or perhaps it's the opposite. You know, his forecheck is excellent. The team is recovering more pucks in the offensive zone. Have you noticed that on a team level or with certain coaches? Yeah, absolutely. There there are a few teams that you can see have great forechecks, and you can combine that with uh, what SportLogic calls successful defensive plays, but it's essentially uh, pass blocks, shot blocks, stick checks, and body checks combined into one, one statistic, uh, not weighted or anything, just one for one. And you can look at those in the offensive zone. And if players are recovering more loose pucks and stripping the opponent of possession more often in the offensive zone, odds are they have a fantastic forecheck. And, you know, last year, the the top four checks in the league were uh, San Jose, Anaheim, L.A., and the Penguins. You know, those are pretty great teams, all known for their good forecheck. And also uh, the Montreal Canadiens. That was actually probably Michel Therrien's biggest strength as a coach was his team was bonkers good on the forecheck, uh, you know, and not just forechecking all over the ice. His team was extremely aggressive in uh, chasing down loose pucks. That That's why he called his system puck pursuit. Unfortunately, 
that led to him deciding that they didn't need to carry the puck. So that ended up, you know, hurting him in the end, but you can't take away the fact that he did develop a, a great forecheck, backcheck, uh, basically everything to, to win those puck battles. And the Canadians uh, roster also was very successful in, in winning those puck battles. So th- there's also sorts of stuff that you can look at with loose puck recoveries and combining it with other statistics to get more information. That's interesting. I, it's tough because you see these coaches who can be incredibly frustrating at times, but they're in the NHL for a reason. These guys do have good systems. It's just finding what they excel at and, and combining that with another coach who can who accentuate uh, those, those skilled structures. Um, moving over to just sport logic kind of as a whole, you guys are one of the larger private analytics companies and one of the most open at the moment. What is it like to be in a way carrying that torch for, for other companies who will follow you guys? Well, I mean, I don't really focus on other companies very much because I don't have, I don't have the time Uh, writing four research articles a week, plus uh, freelancing for vice sports and doing my own podcast as well to, you know, plug it a little, but (laughs) uh, yeah, so I don't really focus on that much, but I I feel like uh, the main thing that I see is that because we're the most open company, we also get the most criticism because once you open yourself up and show what you're using, you you have people asking for more information, right? It's that old adage, you give a mouse a, a cookie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I think is the big hurdle is that the community, the analytics community needs to understand that it's not in SportLogic's financial interest to share more information with them. And every bit of information that they do share, you know, either I've pushed them to share it or it's for financial benef- uh, benefit like uh, marketing for uh, teams to sign on or broadcasters or it's through contracts like uh, the sports that NRDS digital contracts that I have. So it, it's a tough situation because obviously it's natural for people to want to know more, especially people who've created their own stats and had to, you know, rigorously test them to win people over in the public. It sucks to have somebody come out and uh, just publish stuff that you really can't, you know, you don't have the time to track yourself, so you can't really test it. Uh, you don't have access to the data, so you can't test it. You have no idea if, if it makes sense or not. But at the same time, you know, there, there are people who, you know, want to just argue. And, you know, if somebody is going to tell me that uh, recovering loose pucks doesn't matter, that's kind of crazy. You know, like you have to have some appreciation for the nuances of the game. Uh, same thing as like, for, for years and years in the analytics community, there was a, the argument that shot quality did not matter. Uh, it was all about shot attempts, and people didn't want to look beyond that because it was extremely difficult to reliably track scoring chances. And very few people uh, tracked them. And then about a, uh, three years ago, I would say there was a breakthrough, and people started tracking scoring chances and where shots were coming from on the ice. And there became there was another split in high-danger scoring chances. So that was you know scoring chances from a specific area that had a higher chance of going in. And then sport logic looked into it. We found that almost 50% of all goals come from a very small diamond shaped area right in front of the net, right between those hash marks there. And we put that out and that shots from that area have a chance, have a uh, 22.7% chance of going in uh, shots from the high slot are about 12% and then outside it, you're looking at one to 3%. 
right? So they're they're very low quality shots. And then you know we can look through and see like which teams actually are generating good quality shots, uh, which teams are preventing quality shots, and th- there's some pushback on that. But at the same time, that same uh, th- not theory, but that same idea is being used by other websites using NHL uh, scraped data, but the NHL's data is very bad. So like their, their shot locations are very inaccurate and it, it depends on uh, the arena that you're getting it from. Some of them are okay. Some of them are terrible, but you know, there were people earlier this season who was saying, who were saying that uh, for example, Yarmer Yager was not shooting at all from the slot. And then I went and looked at it and like almost all of his shots were from the slot, just like last year. And he was just a little unlucky earlier in the year. So, so you have some disagreements like that where you wish that you could share all of the information, but you'd, you can't because it's just not what the company should be doing on that. And this, if you can't answer this, feel free. How do you guys determine uh, shot location and statistics like that? If you aren't using NHL data, do you have your own cameras that are tracking or uh, the same as the machine learning? So every time that there's a shot that goes off or every play that happens, we have an X and Y location on the ice, right? So when I'm looking at a game, uh, after it's completed or between periods, I can just load shot attempts and it all, it shows up as like dots with the player's number in it on a, on a rink. And as soon as I, it'll show up in a solid dot, if it's uh, successful and a faded dot, if it's failed, so like a miss or a block. Mm-hmm. So if I click on that, it'll show me video of it. So I can double check uh, the machine's location. And if it's wrong, I can send a note to, to Chris Boucher or one of the team leaders in quality assurance and they'll fix it, but they go over it at the end of the game anyway. So all this information, like if I, if I wanted to, sometimes I do. So if I'm writing about a certain player who has been on a hot streak, say like uh, Patrick line at the beginning of the year, I can go in and look at Patrick line's goals and just set up a playlist and it'll show me all of his goals. And then I can set up and look at all of his shots on goal, right? And I can see where they're coming from, uh, how dangerous they are, uh, what was, what were the factors in his goals? Was somebody screening? I can look at all that information, what kind of goal. Uh, it, it's all there. So it's all built into our user interface, which is uh, quite robust now. I'd be like a kid in a candy store with that. That sounds yeah, it, fantastic. It's, it's honestly hard to get work done sometimes. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. Uh, yeah, I, after hearing the explanation for that, it is it both one makes sense why you're not using NHL X and Ys if you've got your own, and two why yeah work would be hard to get done. That that just sounds fantastic. Uh, that's I mean that's more than I expected to to learn today. When I came into this, I was um, hesitant because I wasn't sure how much information you guys could share, uh, and I know there is so much more that that I would love to know and that the community would love to know that you guys can't, and I, I totally get that uh, from a business perspective. I look forward to a day where perhaps uh, you know the NHL invests in you guys and we can get some uh, some more public statistics because I think that would be fantastic for the community, and it would just be leaps and bounds ahead of what we've got now. But uh, you mentioned your own podcast. I know you have a Twitter account as well, so if you want, and you should... Feel free to plug those. Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire. Uh, you can check me out on Facebook as well. It's just uh, facebook.com slash Andrew Berkshire page. And my podcast is, you know, if you check out my Twitter page, it's the first pinned tweet. So you can check that out on SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, sometimes I talk about hockey. Sometimes I talk about other stuff, pop culture stuff. I think the last podcast I did was uh, 
with my friend Arun, who uh, used to work for Marvel Comics, and we went through every single X-Men movie about, about why we liked them or didn't like them, and it, it took like two and a half hours. So <laughs> that one's a that one's a seat belter. That one's going to take a while to get through. Well, and you're a Lex Luthor approved comic taker, so you're fine. These this are almost true. official takes. Yeah, I was reading a Batman comic the other day and uh, noticed that uh, Lex Luthor was the president of the United States in it, and he had been forced to sell off LexCorp, and I was like, huh. So he's more ethical than Trump. And I tweeted that. And I, I think it's like almost at 40,000 retweets now. It's by far the, the craziest uh, viral tweet I've ever had. Every time we speak, you've got a new viral tweet. It seems like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you on a wealth of knowledge. If you aren't following Andrew already, go and do so. Uh, if you liked what you heard today, you can go find all of these episodes online, lastwordonhockey.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud. Just search Game Time Decision Podcast. You can find it on Twitter at GDP underscore podcast. You can find myself there as well at Colton Prail. We'll be back next week with more. Maybe Jack Hahn. He's in the way. And uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Have a good one. <laughs>